Well, welcome. This is also being streamed by Independence Live, so it's on quite a number of different platforms. So that's what you'll see. Why we're having this? Well, actually, in a funny way, I think this is not bad timing um, because there's been, obviously, after COP26 in Glasgow, there was an immediate flurry of, in, of analysis, of disappointment, of speakers from political figures from different countries essentially trying to make a, a bit of brave face on it and to find positives. Um, and now maybe the dust has settled a little bit and we're able to think a little bit about the fact that whatever did or didn't come out of COP, it was always going to be up to us to keep going, to keep finding ways to decarbonize our societies. And that hasn't changed. We still are here trying to find the best way forward. So the, the purpose of tonight really is to try to look probably beyond COP26 uh, to see where we could be going. Obviously, from Scotland's point of view, we're just very lucky to have a set of Nordic neighbours who have mostly managed to get further along some of the roads we have to walk to try to get uh, further along, particularly with heating. Um, so we've got a, a great array of, of speakers tonight to try and focus on to see if there's something we can learn about where they're going with their various energy policies. Um, and it's just possible as well that on this occasion, there might be something useful to say back the way from Scotland. But as ever, if you're a regular with Nordic Horizons, you just wouldn't be holding your breath on that. So um, what I'm going to do is just uh, introduce the speakers that we have. We have Soren Hermansen, who's director of the Energy Academy on SAMSO, which is a small Danish island that's just been made the UN Climate Leader Award winner for 2021. And uh, Soren was uh, a previous speaker at Nordic Horizons back in 2013, I think. We've also got Victoria Raft, who's an energy journalist. Uh, she's now head of communications at the Swedish Housing Association. And she's co-founder of the Gender Equality Network for Women in Energy, Kraft Kvinorna, and member of the Nordic Energy Equality Network. Uh, we have as well Tora Forevik, who's professor in physical oceanography at the Geophysical Institute of Bergen University, and also director of the Nansen Environmental and Remote Sensing Center. Like he's big on oceans, Tura, and he's a previous Nordic Horizons speaker uh, when he talked about climate change several years ago. And we always have a Scot in the room besides myself, because quite a lot of the time, it's hard to know when you listen to the, the various Nordic perspectives, how that meshes really with Scotland, because a lot of the time we don't know our own place well enough. So the man to whom that uh, task falls tonight is Dr. Keith Baker, who's a researcher in fuel poverty and energy policy at the Glasgow Caledonian University. He's co-founder of the Energy Poverty Research Initiative and a member of the Energy Working Group at Commonweal, uh, the think tank, and also an associate of 100% Renewable UK. So that gives you a bit of a clue where he's coming from. Uh, we're at a stage, Nordic Horizons, where we have a little crowdfunder on the go, uh, which is uh, something that you can find quite easily if you're on social media. It would help us enormously if you could give that a push because we've got about another uh, 24 days to raise enough money to keep these virtual uh, events happening. Now, can we cut to the chase pretty much uh, initially by just looking, however, at COP26 
And I was asking each of our contributors to think, I know this is terribly simplistic, but you're looking at, at basically changing the entire infrastructure of the world when you're looking at the issues COP26 was grappling with. So to try to make this manageable, um, we're, we're just going to try and ask each contributor to just start off by saying what one thing they thought was a positive that you could take from COP26 and what was the biggest negative. They might all be the same, but I doubt it. So let's start with Tora Furevik. Tora, um, what did you think then, just looking at, at COP26, negative mm -hmm. and positive? Yes, uh, thank you, Leslie, and also thank you for the invitation. So uh, I actually have more positive than negative things on the list. I was actually quite positively impressed by the meeting, just to say that uh, for the start. So I think the most important thing now is that we see that countries are stepping up their ambitions. So um, if you go before the Paris Agreement, so people are talking about business as usual, that was a four to five degrees world. The warmer world. So now we are talking about, uh, we are coming close to two degrees. So before the, before the Glasgow meeting, uh, just by looking at the current policies, the countries would head towards, or the world would head towards 2.7 degrees. But if you just take all the pledges in Paris and also take all the pledges when it comes to becoming uh, climate neutral in 2050 or 60 or 70, then we are actually now below two degree warming. So, so, so we see that more and more countries are stepping up their ambitions. And also, um, for instance, one of the results of the Glasgow meeting was that there will be a new, what to say, new, new pledges given already next year. So, so that should have been in 2025, and now it will be already 2022. So, so we see that there is the ambitions of, of becoming or stepping up. So I think that's the main. I would say that's number one good positive thing with the, with the Glasgow meeting that we see more and more countries are stepping up ambitions and also when it comes to stock taking and all these things. And the one uh, number one negative thing is that there is still not enough uh, finances there. So when it comes to finance um, mitigation, finance adaptation in, in the developing world, then there is, we are still far from, far from the goal of, for instance, 100 billion US dollars per year to, to finance. Uh, technology development and mitigation in, in the in developing uh, countries. So, so just to summarize, number one is that we see that, or the positive thing we see that the world is now stepping up ambitions. The negative thing is that we still need lots of money on the table to really get the developing world also to 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 follow. And as we've seen today, with the all the problems there are regarding the the latest uh, uh, COVID variant, the same lack of scruples, you might say, the same difficulty in not delivering what's been promised to the developing world is evident mm -hmm. there. And that's all part of the politics, isn't it? You know, It's part of the politics. And we also saw that towards the end of the Glasgow um, negotiations, we also see that, uh, especially the African countries, but also other, they, they really hesitated to sign agreements. So, so I think the so next next year, the, the COP27 will be in Egypt. And then I think the African countries, they will demand, demand much more push on this finance mechanism. So, so I think that will be a big issue in the years to come. Uh -huh. um, Soren? I enjoyed being in Glasgow, um, not only because we got the award, but I think I, I, I'm not a I'm not a usual cop cop what do you call it participant. I, it it was actually my first cop meeting uh, ever uh, because I avoid uh, big uh, groups of people in 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 big uh, top down political arenas because I don't think I have a say there really. 
Um, but I, I must admit, I met a lot of very interesting people and, and I had a lot of networking exercises there. And I really enjoyed to meet many of my co, co what do you call it, network partners from Canada, from Australia, from Japan and other places who were there. And in it, this atmosphere, which I, it was very hospitable and very well organized in Glasgow. I think I liked the atmosphere there. It was not overly security minded and it was not like too hectic it, it, it was just like a big market um, so so it was generally a nice feeling i also left the meeting so i was there for the force to uh, attend a big uh, session with the first nations from canada with indigenous uh, clean energy I, the ice program which was really nice and it, it reflects very much what i do so i left and went to oban and took the ferry to mall Oh. And um, and I went out to see people I knew uh, on mall, and we had a meeting that we should have been to Iona, but it was too windy. It was like 42 meters per second. It was really, really windy. And and out there, we talked about relevant things as how how do we feel, what's life like, how do we survive uh, being left alone on small islands when, when the big guys are talking in Glasgow. And so we had a COP meeting in a meeting house in, in Kintyre, uh, where we organized almost everything and had a really good time. And we finished with uh, some really good Scottish uh, shepherd's pie and some whiskey. And, and, and I, th I felt good about it. And then I could go back to, to the COP meeting uh, on the Monday and prepare for receiving the Climate Leader Award and actually feel that I was in Scotland, not in, in, in a global UN network meeting. So all in all, it was a really good meeting for me and a nice occasion to, uh, to talk to friends and feel a little bit connected to the to the big guys uh, convention. I hesitate to ask for any negative because that is great to hear. Oh, I should, but, should I say some negative? <laughs> well, if you can bring yourself to. I think hmm, the, the interesting thing is the separation between the meeting and, 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 and the people of in, out in the streets of Glasgow. I think it's, it's, it's not so nice that we have all, like a lot of young people on the streets. And then at the same time, we have all these very important people talking um, and, and negotiating uh, details in a big plan that has to be much more effective and much faster. And then listen to the young people saying and, and, and allow them to say blah, 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 which I, I think is right. The young people should do that. They should object to, to, to the big strategic meetings here also. But I sometimes need a, a stronger connection also. So I think it was a pity that we couldn't have a, an open session more on yeah, and that's that's a tremendous to imagine you flying, getting off to Oban, then Mull, and somehow back to Kintyre, you know, to sort of sample the real Scotland. I'm, I'm so glad you did, because having been at COP26 myself as a Scot, it didn't feel particularly, the whole thing is just a managed experience, really. So I'm glad you got somewhere. There is that irony as well that the award your island got, but it's this small, energy-rich island with loads of turbines on it, which transformed from being um, a kind of bunch of conservative farmers, I think you described them, with a small C 20, 30 years ago, and has shifted itself completely. Now, one of the reasons you could do that is because you have tremendous links, grid connections with Denmark. And this is the reason that a little island I'm very interested in, which you could have seen on your journey, perhaps, is the island of Egg. Uh, on Scotland, which has got an off-grid system. But that's because there's no connection to virtually any of these islands by the grid, not big connections, not big enough 
to take the wind that you are capable of creating and they could take. Did, did the people on Mull let you know about those problems? Oh, yes, absolutely. What, what we talk about is generally the, the lack of being part of the bigger democratic process. Of course, it's possible for for people to to vote for kind of the, the general elections and all these sort of things, but they don't, it's not, Mall is not an independent municipality. They don't have their own government. They don't, uh, I mean, they belong to Argyle Butte, uh, the, the, the county. And I think they feel a little bit like they are not in business in their own community. I mean, they might be connected, but the ferry starts from Oban and go to Mall, Mall in the morning and it, it ends in, in Oban also. So it's not made for the island, but for people from, from the mainland to go to the island to help these poor people. Where we have we have managed to make the ferry start on Samsung, my island, and end in the mainland. So I can participate in meetings in the mainland and go back in the evening because the ferry belongs to Samsung, not to the mainland. There's those little things that we're talking about. How do we make an independent society based on what do you call it, to be masters of our own house, so to speak, Yes. which they also do in, in, in AIC where they are not connected and they have to do it, where we there's a lot of other things here that is similar to being disconnected or connected. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. Um, so, Victoria, can you come in and, and give us your idea of what you thought was strong and weak out of COP26? Yes, I'd love to. And thank you so much for inviting me tonight. It's an honor to be here and discuss these, these uh, important issues. I think that the whole meeting gave us, it reflected a more of a positive sentiment than before, if you compare to the previous meetings. So that in, in itself was very positive, I, I would say. It's, a, it's as if um, finally more and more countries are awakening and more and more are realizing the severeness of the situation, which I think in itself is, is positive. Speaking of, of figures, as um, somebody mentioned before me, I think that the regulations, I mean, for the Paris Agreement, that they were completed. That was the priority number one of the meeting and they managed to deliver on it. So I think that's that's outstanding. I also think that the the goal of reducing emissions to 45% by 2030, of course, is something that's been talked about here in Sweden and, and pointed out as something very positive. If I am going to pick out just one negative thing from the meeting that has to be India and more countries alongside India's downplay of, of the, the face out of fossil fuels. So not face out, but face down. Uh, and I think that was a huge disappointment by the end of the meeting when everything was looking so good and so positive. And then that sort of negative twitch just destroyed a lot of, of the positive sentiment. But it, still, overall, I think the meeting, we are on our way. And I think that many countries are now realizing the, the greatness of the situation. And that was, that was clear based on that meeting's outcome, I would say. Can I ask you, Victoria, um, Sweden has recently had, well, an interesting political couple of weeks where you've got a new prime minister, um, social democrat, who essentially lost the budget that she tried to put through, then lost the Green Party from her coalition and is now in power, but having to be in power with a budget that was created by the right, essentially, in the, the Swedish parliament. Now, I'm explaining all that, not just for our viewers, because it's quite fascinating, but 
How does that impact on what Sweden is going to do? Because if the budget must be kept too, is it one that really puts a lot of money into the, the transitions that you need? Good that you point this out. It's a, we've had a couple of very, very hectic weeks and an interesting weeks politically. Uh, so Magdalena Andersson was voted into office today again for the second time in one week. And she's going to present her government tomorrow with her new list of, of ministers. Um, that will be an entirely social democratic government as opposed to before when they had the environmentalist party alongside them. I think overall the loss of the Miljöpartiet, the, the environmentalists from government um, is also a loss for the path going forward to renewables in one way. Having said that, uh, there's only 10 months to go to the, the election, so this will not have a great impact in the short run. Uh, when it comes to budget-wise, the budget posed by, by the, the right wing uh, obviously does not put as much emphasis into subsidies to, um, to renewables as a left wing or a more social democratic and, and, and uh, environmentalist budget would have. But hopefully, as I said, this is only 10 months going forward now and um, we'll see what happens this fall. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you for that. Now, listening to all of that is Keith Baker, um, who is our Scot. Keith, you can reflect on what has been said so far and add your own thoughts. And actually, what really strikes me is perhaps our Nordic contributors are just awfully polite, and they really are, I think. <laughs> or they are, are really not as critical of COP26 as most of us, really, who were quite engaged with the, the issue sitting right here. I know. Um, and thanks for inviting me in. Thanks for, um, to everyone, every other panellist showing up. And I'm sat here thinking I'm going to be the negative one. Um, I actually, I was really struggling to think of something positive, um, but actually Greta outside getting sweary um, with the strikers, I thought was my highlight. Um, somebody with such a high profile reporting the strikers and, and highlighting the need that, you know, we need green jobs. We need fair pay for the, for the refuse workers, for the rail workers. This is something, you know, one of the many things I will criticise the SNP over just as much as any other party. Um, and of course, we have to throw the Greens into that now they're in coalition. So yeah, Greta's sweary speech that went around the world was brilliant. On the negatives, um, I'm going to call it and say I think we're now heading towards at least 2.4 degrees C average temperature rise. Um, I've been in touch with um, Bill McGuire, who's a friend of mine down at UCL, um, who contributed a fantastic quote to the 21 for 21 climate actions campaign that Commonweal put out over the summer. Um, the two of us, I think, and plenty of others are getting really, really quite depressed about this situation. Um, and in Scotland, you know, we now have the situation where um, I'm sat here re responding to the, the consultation on the heat networks delivery plan, which is an absolute car crash legislation delivered by people without sufficient technical knowledge. We've been telling the Scottish government for years that they need to follow the Danish model. And we'll, we'll come to this when we talk about district heating. But there is just seems to be a, a lack of willingness, a lack of capacity, a lack of drive. We now have a situation where the Scottish Greens, by supporting the hydrogen action plan, which talks of blue hydrogen, are actually now supporting the continued extraction of fossil fuels from the North Sea. So I'm sorry, guys, I'm, I'm really, really struggling to find positives. And I've been, you know, dare I say, struggling a bit with my mental health because of it. I'm sat looking at working group, the working group three report which for the IPCC, which obviously I can't talk about. But 
what we've got is a reliance on future technologies. You know, we might as well just say, well, fusion is going to come and solve the problem in five years, like we've been doing for the last however many decades. So sorry to be negative, but that's pretty much where I'm standing on the thing at the moment. Well, it's always good to have somebody provoking, you know, that they, there's just loads of issues. I just wonder uh, if we could have everybody just, you know, all of you, Soren, Tora and Victoria, just come in on what you want there. Some of it might have been difficult for you to understand because Keith was referring to Scottish powers, like, for example, the heat networks delivery plan. You might know that in Scotland, we have only 5% of homes on, on district heating. And that might be very related to the fact we have 85% of heating delivered by gas, which mostly comes from Norway, thanks to where you guys are smart enough to not use it. That's one problem. And it's one that uh, Denmark has been very much to the fore in trying to, well, the district heating systems from Denmark are being quoted by everyone as what we should be going for. But actually, also in Sweden, there is small, smart grids just of a couple of buildings, which are actually becoming producers of energy. They can even be charging up electric cars. So I wonder if we could just stop and go through these things a bit one by one, because it would help us a lot. Our big challenge is this question of heating, because at the moment, people are being left to have to finance that whole change themselves with yet another whole set of individual heating systems instead of a big shift to district heating. So can we just stick with that question of heating for a moment and just ask Soren, first of all, I mean, how does it does it work in Denmark? When we decided to, um, to cut the dependency on imported oil and coal from outside in our energy uh, policy from, I mean, back from the 70s when we had the oil crisis, uh, Denmark actually decided to to, to work on a policy that made us independent from imported fuel from outside. So that was very pragmatic attitude to this. And, and so we have a corporate ownership model that has been used since the Vikings, where, where people can get together and invest in, in infrastructure or things that serves the interest of the common. And, and, and district heating is exactly uh, kind of that tool or instrument to do that. So instead of importing fuel from outside, we looked around on Samsø, in many other places of Denmark, to see what could replace heat, uh, uh, fuel, like oil and coal. And that was straw, wood chips, it could be waste. I mean, resources that we had flying around uh, in our neighborhood that was either composted or just uh, evaporated into thin air or producing a problem for us in dumps and other places here also. So that was actually a very early start on using local resources at a very reasonably low cost uh, by uh, ma- putting in, installing a piping system where you have like a main pipe in a village and a central boiler where you can burn all these fuels or either or of these fuels and circulate the hot water to all the houses and take out the individual heating system. We have been able to produce that cheaper than imported fuel from outside, which is paying for the cost of it. And then we have a common maintenance program, common insurance and other things. So there's a lot of ripple effects that is uh, helping the local community. And on top of that, another ripple effect is that when you import fuel from outside, then you have to earn the money locally and buy an imported product. Where here, we pay less for the same product, but we buy it from the next door neighbor who then pays tax in the local community. And we have a circular economy that will help and grow the local economy because it also produces jobs and stuff like that. So so this is a very typical Danish pragmatic attitude to change. 
that instead of having a centralized big system where you serve uh, a lot of purposes with one one supplier, we have a multiple faceted supplier system where we use local resources to replace something that is very expensive from outside. That 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 was a quite short version of of, of the system. I don't know if that is. That was a masterpiece of clarity, actually. What's interesting there, because I see there's a question from Helen about is there a challenge uh, to deliver district heating in remote and rural settings? I mean, clearly not. I mean, Egg have got their little off-grid system. It's not a district heating system, but but you do actually have district heating on the island of Samso. What about just on the mainland? How do you cope with just one house here, one house there? You can't. There must be places that district heating cannot reach. I- Actually, from the very beginning, it was it was typically farmhouses that started this also because they had they had extra supply of straw or biomass of some kind, cuttings from from fences and woods and stuff like that. They they didn't know how to use, and they could buy a modern furnace where they could make their own little individual heating system where they also could heat the, the stables or to dry grain or hay and stuff like that. So it, they could they could supply just one house. But then they bought some bigger boilers and then they could supply the next house as well. And then the, the, the limit of this is also there's a limit to how, how long a distance you can have between two houses because then the heat loss in the pipe will be too significant. And then you have to make a new system when, when, when the, the length extends a certain, certain capacity. And so we have a lot of different scales of, of this system. It can be one, three houses, it can be 100 houses, 500 houses or several thousand houses. So, so, so it's kind of the same thinking, but it it, it scales with 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 capacity and 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 distance and and resources. So, so today, what who cannot be reached by this is using heat pumps, because heat pumps are using electricity and electricity is produced from the nearby wind turbines. So we can use the electricity locally to produce the same kind of heat, and and it doesn't need it. Does, there's no heat loss in the pipe because you serve it by electricity. So, so. We are working with a system we call uh, district heating without pipes, or kind of a wireless pipe system, where they can pay the same per megawatt hour that, that they do on a water-based system, but they use electricity, but they don't own the facility, the, the heat pump. It's owned by the cooperative district heating system. So they just pay the same, and the system will supply them with a heat pump instead of using imported fuel from outside. And And the reason for this is that we want to meet a very low carbon emission. Uh, so, so this is kind of the, our end goal to be carbon free uh, with the, within a, a decade. Uh, so we need to kind of cut down on carbon emissions in, in every source we can find. Wow, and just final question, so we just completely understand how this is possible. Is, is all of that dependent on you having very big cables with the mainland to have that or not? Well, yes and no. We are depending on big cables mainly because we are exporting a lot of electricity from our base, from local based wind turbines, because we put in a lot of extra capacity because we wanted to compensate for transport. So we have some really huge big ferries and the ferries are guilty of about 40% of the total CO2 emissions. So that's a heavy polluter. So, so before we have electric ferries or hybrid electric ferries, we have compensated for the diesel that, that the ferries are using. But today we have a, one of, of the ferries we have run is a hybrid electric ferry. So we are g- gradually moving into a transport system where we are using the electricity from the wind turbines as well. But in the beginning, we needed the cable to export and compensate for the emission by producing CO2 free energy and sell it to the main grid. 
but we want to get rid of that dependency and, and sort of start using it locally when technology allows us to do it. Okay, wow. Uh, Tora, have you got thoughts on any of that? Um, Keith, you're going to have to come back in and be less gloomy at some point or else very gloomy because Scotland is so far from many of the component parts of what Soren described mm-hmm. there. But, um, I mean, you could pick up any of the other things that were mentioned, like blue hydrogen. Um, Tora, I don't know if you want to pick up on that because a lot of people are worried that the move towards hydrogen will actually be blue hydrogen, which really depends on fossil fuels continuing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can say a few things about it. So first of all, it's, it's very interesting to hear what they have done at SAMSUS because it's it's really advanced and really it's it's really nice to hear. So so for, for Norway, of course, we are we are mainly m- most of our heating is based on electricity, so it's a hydropower. So we are not we do not have much CO two emissions related to heating as as many other countries have. So so what we are doing a lot in Norway is to invest now into um, batteries or so batteries for ferries batteries on on other other uh, transports uh, offshore we are we are investing of course a lot into electrical cars so that's that's one place in the transport sector and if we if we look at emissions in Norway so uh, compared to all of our neighbors for instance Denmark Sweden UK their emissions have have gone down a lot since for instance 1990 while in Norway it's been more or less flat or even increased if you look at the CO2 part of it so that's mainly transport sector, and then it's oil and gas sector. So no, so what Norway is doing now is to invest a lot to try to make the transport go more and more on electricity, and also oil and gas exploitation should be more and more more and more driven by electricity. So, so so we can get what you say, not not clean not clean fossil fuel, but the production of fossil fuel will be without emissions. And then uh, what you mentioned with blue hydrogen is also one of the things Norway is looking into because that is to use, it's to use the gas from the North Sea or from the Barents Sea to use gas. And then is to take out the CO2 and, and that is being done with, with the, yeah, carbon, carbon capture and also try to store, store the carbon in the North Sea. So, so, so Norway is investing a lot into these kind of new technologies and some people believe this will be a few, there is a future in it. Other people are more are more negative to it, and I guess I will be somewhere in between. So it's it may be something in the future, but but I, I don't I don't really believe in believe in this blue hydrogen because it will be too expensive to produce, and also with the gas prices that we see now, for instance, it will be extremely expensive to produce blue hydrogen. So so I don't I don't think that will be a future for at least not for many. I mean, Tore, you you know, some people could say that Norway is cutting a surprising number of corners, really, with this, Mm -hmm. because we have a big discussion about carbon capture since a plant was expected to go to the northeast of Scotland. And perhaps for political reasons, it went to strange places uh, in England instead. But in that discussion, many people pointed out that carbon capture would only ever deal with something like one ten thousandth of the emissions, you know, it's a tiny, tiny thing. Mm-hmm. Now, has Norway somehow got a better system or is this just just for show? Uh, no, there are many people that really believe in this. And uh, for instance, no- Norway is now investing quite a lot of money into a facility just west of where I'm living, so west of Bergen. And that is to take CO2 from, um, so that's mainly from waste yeah, so, so places where you're burning waste and also places where you're producing concrete or cement, cement factories. 
So that's where you have very large point sources. So the idea there is to take the carbon out of the yeah, gases or the waste from these power plants and then to not power plant, to these plants and then to bring it to this place west of Bergen and then send it out in the North Sea. So there is actually a facility that's, that has been built. But as you say, it's only a few, at least for now, it will only be a few places and it will only be a tiny fraction of the, the total emissions in Norway. Okay, and just to keep on the sort of naughty mm-hmm. Norway theme, mm-hmm. drilling. I noticed that that there was agreement that the massive oil fields in Lofoten, the Lofoten Islands, there was agreement by the La- the Arbeider Party, the Labour Party, no, not to mm-hmm. drill, mm-hmm. which which actually, just to pick up the point Soren made, was partly because the local council there decided no. Mm-hmm. And that's how powerful folks local councils are in Nordic countries. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But anyway, I see now, though, that the government is talking about it's issued new licenses in the Barents Sea, and it's still talking about drilling. So which Mm -hmm. is it? So uh, you're right. So there is an area of northern Norway, Lofoten area, that has not been protected for oil and gas. So it's just been, yeah, at least not, not the current government and not the previous government. They will not look into this. But, but we, we got the new government in September and actually today they agreed on the budget. So that's, that's so now we have a centre-left government and they actually got an agreement on the, on the national budget with the, with the socialist left party. So it's, it's quite far to the left. But if you look, if you look into the, the, the policy for oil and gas exploitation, then this, the, two, the two flanks of the Norwegian um, politics, they are more or less the same. So, so, so it's, it's, not, it's not the big, the big parties in Norway, they more or less agree on the policy. And that is that we should, unfortunately, in my mind, we should still continue to look for new oil and gas fields. So, so there are some small parties that are against this, but the big Labour Party and the Conservatives, they both agree on that we should still continue to look for oil and gas. But the search will go on in areas like the Barents Sea, which will be more difficult to find oil than Lofoten, which for, for people who are trying to think in Scotland, our big mm-hmm. issue at the moment is the Cambo oil field near Shetland. Mm-hmm. And actually, the amount of, of uh, the, the barrels that could be in Lofoten are something like three, four times, five times more even than the enormous Cambo field and that is not being drilled. It's much, much further north in new fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the main reason for this Lofoten area is that it's the spawning ground for the cod, the cod uh, stock that also is, of course, an important thing for Norway. So, it's, so I think that, that, was the main, that was the main reason for this area being protected for oil and gas exploitation. But, but, but again, uh, Norway is one of the few countries in the world that still uh, are pushing for oil and gas uh, in the Arctic, for instance. And that's, yeah. um, it, but it is, it, is, it is more and more discussion in Norway also. But so far, both, as I said, both the two, the two major parties in Norway, they both agree that we should, we should continue to look for oil and gas. Do, do you realise that will have astonished most people in Scotland? Do you realise that that, knowing that Norway is drilling for oil in the Arctic, Will have astonished a lot of people in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is, and it's also more and more difficult to actually 
conference into the international negotiations and argue that there still should be room for new oil and gas fields in the north. And for instance, so during the COP meetings, there is a prize given by something called Carbon. Uh, it's one. It's one of the. It's uh, it's some someone that's organizing different environmental uh, organizations, and they gave the fossil prize of the day to Norway. So that was the first day. And that is because the Norwegian prime minister, he argued that there still should be room for Norwegian gas, for instance, in also in the transition towards renewable energy. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a difficult view to take, but still in Norway, there is a political majority that say we should still look for oil and gas. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for being so honest. Uh, Victoria, do you, do you want to just come in on anything, any of the debates you've heard there? And also on Keith's list of things that make him despair is the nuclear fusion, the ex- expectation that everything else will just be too difficult, too hard to deliver, and people will shift back to nuclear. Now, Sweden actually has about 40% nuclear energy, I think, in, in its mix. Uh, what do you think of that? Yeah, well, if, if I should start off with on the nuclear topic, then we have 30% power production from nuclear power now uh, nowadays, I should say. We closed down two reactors a couple of years ago, and we've already closed down uh, two. So uh, we're not standing as, as many as before. And of course, there's been a debate about this in Sweden, when you have one political part who wants more nuclear power, claiming that it's fossil, fossil free. And then you have the other, the other part, the political part, uh, that's claiming, no, no, thank you, no more nuclear power. So the reactors that are remaining in our system, they have increased the, uh, their usage time to 60 years. So they will be probably running until past 2040, I would say, is what I've read to uh, so far. So this is for the Swedish industry who are very much pro-nuclear power, for example. This is one of the cornerstones in our reliable power production, fossil-free reliable power production so we really have clear sort of parties having very, very diff- different views on nuclear power. But the, the, what's, what they're claiming is that it's emission-free. So that's sort of one of the positive, most positive aspects of nuclear power. And that's also what I've, what I've been hear, hearing from other countries who are investing in new nuclear power, obviously. It's emissions-free. Yes, it has other aspects too, which tend to worry a lot of people in Scotland. And actually, Scotland has used, it doesn't have control over energy, that's reserved to Westminster, but it's made clear that it will use its planning powers to stop any new nuclear power station being built here. However, I suppose it's fair to say that Scotland has so many other energy sources that we should be able to find a substitute. Does Sweden have other alternatives, do you think, to nuclear, or is that going to be there to stay? No, I don't think nuclear power is, is going to be here to stay. I think Sweden has many, many other alternatives, and I think Sweden, as a country, we have so much. Uh, we're, we're really good at new technology. We're very good at sharing knowledge about new technology, and I think that's one of the reasons why I think, or and, and many with me think that there's a positive sentiment from, from the COP26 because we see the possibilities to do something differently. And we know that there is new technology. There are other paths to take. You don't have to go down the fossil 
uh, fossil ditch. <laughs> you don't have to use nuclear power. You can use offshore wind. You can use onshore wind. You have the solar cell technology. Uh, you have hydrogen, and I'm not talking about the blue hydrogen. And you have, within our case, we have our hydropower. And of course, hydropower from an environmentalist perspective is very complicated, obviously. Sweden made a decision 150 years ago to invest in hydropower, and that's we're lucky today that we, we made that difficult decision. Nevertheless, it has a great impact on our environment. That's bottom line. You cannot discuss that. So from where, where we are sitting, I think we have many opportunities to choose other paths after nuclear power. That's my, my personal opinion. And sure. And I know that we have increased our wind power production massively the last couple, the last 20 years. Uh, we're aiming at, I think we have about 20% wind power in our energy mix now. So that's a lot. Of course, that's volatile power. Of course, that's wind power. It's dependent on, on wind. But in combination with hydropower, then that's a very, very good combination. It will take you far. Yeah, I see on, on the chat, I don't know if, I, if we could just tempt fate here. Tor, your, your stat is, uh, is there. Okay, Tor, can you unmute yourself and just ask the point that you had about nuclear? And we're not going to stay for long on nuclear, but just let's have this one. Uh, yes, thank you, Leslie. Uh, I'm involved in a group in the Highlands called Highlands Against Nuclear Transport that uh, has campaigned for many years to prevent the transport of nuclear waste 400 miles from Dunray in the far north of Scotland near Thurso down to Sellafield in Cumbria which is the big nuclear waste dump in Great Britain. We have widened our campaign uh, to take in both nuclear power and nuclear weapons but on the nuclear power side there was a proposal for a nuclear fusion plant in Dunray very recently uh, with money from the government and we oppose that and their bid has actually been turned down, although it's still going to go to a different location in, in England. Uh, surprise, surprise. So we're opposed to nuclear fusion because they've spent 70 years trying to get it to work and they've never made it work yet. They've spent billions of pounds on it uh, in about five or six different countries. Uh, and it's as far away from being a reality as it ever was. So, so those are some of the reasons. And it also produces waste. People don't realize that nuclear fusion produces less radioactive waste, but larger quantities. So you still have this waste problem of having to store. We have 500 tons of waste in the UK, uh, and it's got to be stored underground is the proposal at the moment. That's the community in Cumbria, which is now accepting uh, the, the, the uh, offer of, of placing it in uh, in their community in return for a, a one million pound bribe. So that waste has to last for a hundred thousand years. So we're opposed to fusion and we're also opposed to uh, small modular reactors. This is another last gasp from the nuclear industry to keep going with the nuclear industry, which is dead in it on its heels uh, and is actually decreasing worldwide. So we have to get rid of nuclear, huge problems with waste. Uh, it's unsafe, unstable, and uh, it, it's not the answer for, for, for the future. So, so that's a sort of campaigning uh, answer to your question, but that's what we've been doing in the Highlands to, to try and prevent any new nuclear okay. developments in this area. Okay, thank you so much for that. That was very, very to the point. Um, 
But I think, you know, it might, it might be there is more agreement amongst our speakers than, than disagreement, perhaps, on these things. Um, I wonder if I could bring Keith back in, because you were the one that started all these balls rolling. What, what have you made, made of what you've heard there? I'm loving hearing the positivity from our Nordic friends. And I'm sat here thinking of the Scottish context and the amount of obfuscation and propaganda. It is propaganda being pushed out by the SNP and the Greens um, around our, you know, our potential one of the things we've been pushing really, really hard on with Commonweal is the Danish model of district heating, where you get um, large-scale solar thermal um, interseasonal heats. W- one of the things we push really hard on is this Danish model, which Soren has summarised brilliantly in terms of the ownership aspect. Um, the the technology aspect um, is bringing in large-scale solar thermal arrays. So solar thermal, the sorts of panels that you have on your house um, to produce hot water. Um, combine that with interseasonal heat storage, which is basically like covered reservoirs and boreholes, and use that to store excess heat during the summer, and then you get it out and into a heat network during the winter. For a lot of people, this is like, what? you know. And actually, we had a question earlier on about whether the whole district heating thing works for tenements. And actually, it's probably, I'd imagine, pretty much easier for, for any kind of you know, concentrated housing. But your, your idea, if I understand this rightly, is that you don't need to have solar panels on each individual house you put them collectively in one place and and have a collective heat store so that that works for the little mini network um, of houses yeah i would put solar thermal panels on pretty much every house anyway because even if you're getting only a small amount of hot water out of them it's an easy win um, it's cheap, it's reliable, it's proven. And I actually think that all the solutions that we need to all our energy problems are with us now. Um, it's just a matter of how we make them work together. And what the Danes have been brilliant on, um, particularly Ramble, the big engineering consultancy who've done a lot of those projects, is combining that large scale solar arrays um, with the heat stores and with any number of other technologies which can be recovering waste heat from buildings and um, biomass. Um, sustainable biomass, local sustainable, as Soren was saying, and that's really important. You can plug in heat pumps, you can plug in a lot of renewable technologies, um, but it's the strategic planning that the Scottish government has missed. Um, and up until very, very recently, it's even missed the technology side. What I'm finding really quite shocking about the current proposals is they're looking at demand. They're not doing what Soren was saying about where the Danes started with looking where the supply was. They're trying to look at where the demand might be and they're basing it on energy models, which for years and years, I've been telling the Scottish government are fundamentally flawed, and yet they carry on believing them. The Danes have got a fantastic history with district heating, um, going back to the turn of the last century. And for some reason, the Scottish government continuously fails to learn from that Danish experience. The Danes brought in a Heat Supply Act in 1979, and that was the start of building up the, the, the legislation where you where you basically um, compels too strong a word, but you, you mandate um, people with excess energy to connect to um, buildings that can use it for heat. This is something that the Scottish government has continuously refused to implement. Like, um, can I just see if, if the other if the other countries, Sweden, because district heating, it's like many things with the Nordic countries. You go to one Nordic country and think, gosh, that's interesting. Look how they do that. Then you go to another one and think, oh, look, they do it as well. And finally, you realise that the only weird thing is here, that we don't do it. So, Victoria, how does it work with you? Yes, thank you. I was just going to write in in the chat, actually, about Swedish Dixon District heating. 
Um, we were pioneers in this in central district district heating. We started in the 50s to uh, equip all major cities with district heating facilities. So uh, as far as I understand it, in Denmark, they're more uh, decentralized. In Sweden, they are more centralized and bigger. So uh, we have them in Stockholm, we have them in Malmö, in sort of all the major cities. We have large CHP plants, uh, mainly fired by, by waste and biomass. So fossil free and for heating. And that the, the, one of the advantages, obviously, is that you detach the energy system, you, you separate heating from, from the usage of, of electricity. So in high peak situations, you can always use your power for what you need it for. And you, you know that you always have your heating on, so to speak, in a cold country like ours and in Denmark, same thing. So yeah. what was it back in the 50s? Because unfortunately, we are where you were in the 1950s which is a pretty terrible yeah, realization. Sorry to hear that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what happened? Uh, in the 50s, we started refurbishing Sweden, so to speak. We, uh, it was the era of, of Folkemet. It was the era of, of uh, building our modern way of life, so to That's speak. That's the Folkemet, is the, folk, yes. the people's home, that yeah, whole package home. Of, of welfare yeah. and everything. Yeah, so that's when we cracked the nut about CHPs and, and the district heating. And then, of course, the, with the oil crisis, we exaggerated these plants because we had to disconnect from oil, basically. So the creation of district heating and centralized district heating in Sweden is, is one of the reasons why we, we are not dependent on oil uh, to the same extent as, as many other European countries. And is this because Sweden, like Denmark, be more so, didn't really have oil reserves like Norway and Britain. I mean, when, when you realized you were dependent on oil with the oil crisis of the 1970s, you, you must have realized your energy security was almost nil. I imagine that, well, well, that was the reason. I, I, was, I, was, I myself, I was born in, the, in during the 70s. As I think Søren said earlier, I mean, being dependent on importing expensive fuels for your energy situ- uh, supply, it, in the long run, that's very negative for, for your economy. So that's one aspect. But then, of course, when we are here today, the other aspect is, of course, that we are 98% fossil free in our electricity production mm-hmm. in Sweden. Yeah, Soren. Yeah, I just wanted to, to comment that uh, it, it was not just oil crisis that made us uh, aware of the potential of district heating. It was also like a, a, a philosophy of good housekeeping where uh, all the main or the central power stations in the old days uh, from producing electricity from coal and oil were always almost entirely uh, situated near a big city. So there was a short distance from the power stations and the cooling. I mean, almost 30% of the production of electricity is uh, evaporated into thin air. You have these big cooling towers where you evaporate if you can't cool it with seawater and other things also. So some smart Danes or Swedish or, or, or Scandinavian people were thinking, that's not good housekeeping. So we, so we started piping the cooling uh, of, the, of the engines uh, or the generators of, of, of electricity to the houses. Very inefficient in steel pipes, not, not, not insulated at all, but, but it was the beginning of district heating and it was working perfectly. So somebody saw that this is the potential. So maybe we should make entirely district heating and not just cooling of district heating. So it started kind of a, 
with, with some smart guy thinking we, we, we shouldn't waste the, the, the hot water from cooling the, the generator into the sea. We should put, pump it into the houses and use it for heating. And I wonder, just I'll bring Tora in again here, but how much of this, Soren, before you disappear again, um, was, was because of what you picked up about Mull not having local control? Could you have done what you've done if you were part of a large council that also included half of the mainland? I think we, we were, we've always had a tradition that energy production is organized by the state. So we don't have private energy production in Denmark. Uh, not basic, I mean, not originally. They, they were part of a Danish state-owned power system. And, and because it was organized, then it was also demo- governed demo- in a democratic demo- way. Yeah. And I think that was, that, was kind of, that was kind of the basis for people to be able to think differently from a business point of view, where, where the end consumer is, uh, is uh, buying electricity or heat or whatever. So you have a separated supply system. You have an electricity system where you can sell them electricity. You have a gas system where you can sell them gas. And you have other things here also. And I think... We, we didn't have that. We, we have it more and more today because it, the market is more and more privatized, but we still have remaining uh, remnants of, of, a, of a democratic governed energy supply system. And I think that is kind of the key to, to sensible housekeeping, uh, what do you call it, the philosophies uh, about how not to waste energy. Um, so is it the Danish Energy Agency that still runs quite a lot of things? So the big, the, the big stuff is organized by uh, something called Energinet, I can I can type mm. the, the the website yeah. on it, because in again it is is it's administrating the gas grid and the electricity grid, the the, the backbone, uh, the high voltage system. So the distribution system is still governed by the state, and I think that is very important because then the supply system is is could be cooperatively owned or privately owned, but they have to obey rules that is uh, decided by by democracy, and I think that is that is kind of why we 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 can still control. Uh, how we how we use the law to protect kind of losses and 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 not import uh, stuff from outside if it if it's not in line with with the policy. I just wonder, and any of you, Tura, for example, I'm not asking you to look at Britain and kind of laugh or cry, but when you see all of the Nordic speakers, when you've seen the problem that we have at the moment with dozens of energy companies, private energy suppliers going out of business and really people being handed on with massive price increases with a kind of just an energy market that was privatized basically 30 years ago. It feels like we have none of the control or strategy that Soren is describing. I wonder, you know, does it, does, do you look at us and just think, wow, why did you do that? No, I will not do that. So it's, uh, of course, it's different systems. And um, just very brief, it's uh, with, with Norway. So most houses in Norway, they are, they are heated by electricity. And then we have, uh, we have district heating for typically big customers like the hospital and university and uh, the big, big companies. They are typically having, having district heating. And then, of course, uh, Norway is a big, big exporter of, of gas. And you said that 80, 85% of the, of the gas consumption in, in UK is from, from Norway. Is, is by gas. It's. Um, I, I think the way out for UK is that it should be wind-driven. So offshore wind, for instance, could be one. Is is one thing that's coming more and more. So 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 I I would guess that going from 
going from gas to electricity is perhaps a better way than to go via this reheating. I, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not an expert in this, but, uh, but at least to, to bring in electricity combined with heat pumps, for instance, it's a much more easy thing to install than to have a district heating in all houses. But, but again, I'm, I, I'm not expert at all. I suppose what I was trying to do was to tempt um, yourself or Victoria into a political observation um, mm. in that what Soren seemed to be saying and what it looks like to us is that we have so little control of the levers in Scotland because energy is controlled in Westminster, but in Britain because energy was privatised by Margaret Thatcher and now it's hard to drive strategy because it comes via private mechanisms and without uh, the kind of dem- democratic input that Soren was describing, as I understand it, uh, Equinor, which is the successor to Statoil, is still two-thirds owned by the Norwegian state. The hydro is owned by the municipalities, by the state. Is that not quite important? It might be hard for you to imagine what it's like to be where we are now, where everything is owned by private companies. Yes, it's certainly, it is, uh, like Søren says, it is a way that the democracy can work also when it comes to energy. So uh, we, have a, we have a small, very small crisis in Norway because, because electricity prices, they have skyrocketed the last uh, month or so. So, so no, no, it's really a political discussion about the energy system and what Norway should do to, for inst- yeah, to keep energy prices low, essentially, for, for Norway. So, so now, now it's actually a discussion about energy also in the domestic market. But, but we have, of course, since, as you say, it's owned, it's owned either by the government or by the municipalities. So it's, uh, it's, much, it's much more the politicians can do in Norway, I guess, than what they can do in Scotland or, or, or in Britain as such. Right, Victoria and then Keith, and then I'm going to come for some more questions from the audience. Just to to um, to broaden the perspective a little bit on Sweden, so our power market was deregulated the 1999 going into the 2000. So even though we have the Swedish TSO, which is Svenska Kraftnät, who uh, similar to Denmark owned the backbone of the infrastructure, the 400 kilovolt network in Sweden, we do have a separation between the grid companies who are usually owned by, or always owned by, by the municipalities, so-called natural monopolies. And then you have the, the power companies that actually sell your kilowatt hour that you use at home, and they are privatized since 20 plus years back. So the, there has been a development and there has been, been all these years, there, ha, there has been discussions about, about this fact. But I think that we're still sort of leaning towards the history of Sweden. We're still leaning towards the decisions back in the days when, when we had huge control over, over, over the infrastructure and over the planning of, of the society, basically. I think that's, that must be one of the differences also, to how, how you portrayed the, the fundament and the, the outline of your society, I imagine. But then, as well as these big central ideas, you also were nodding when I was talking about the new ideas in Sweden when it comes to district heating, even for just very small buildings becoming, I think there's a phrase here, becoming a, a prosumer, that you're mm-hmm. actually producing energy yeah. as well as being consumers of it. That's fascinating because it means that every house 
is potentially a production unit of energy. And it always was. Yes, that's right. It's only a couple of years back that that you actually, you, it was decided that you could sell back your your, sub, your surplus power from your own house into the grid again and get paid by it. To start with, you didn't need, you didn't get paid. You just gave it. But now there's a, there's a function a few years since a few years back that, that enables people to to sell back, and and also being a presumer uh, in in that sense. But if you were to stick electric cars into that equation, you can be using your car as a battery. Yeah, that's right. So can someone put that all together? I mean, what what is the future going to look like? Because you're closer to it. Norway has the highest amount of electric vehicles in the world per head of the population. Um, there's a lot of local energy. You're all nodding because this is a familiar idea to you. I mean, how soon will it be that you've got right down to the units where energy isn't seen as a problem, but actually is being produced by every house and using batteries, to the cars to cleverly store energy? Yes, uh, so we, we are going in that direction. So there's more and more smart smart steering of the of the of the um, electricity now. So people are installing devices on all actually everything. So if you are heating your water in your in your bathtub or when you're when you're when you are charging your battery in your electric car. So, so this system is coming coming now. So so there will, so people have a, yeah what's called a spot spot price. So then you can charge your car. When it's the cheap uh, electricity, and then you can put it back on the grid when it's uh, expensive electricity. So this this is coming more and more, and of course people are combining it with rooftop rooftop uh, solar panels, and they're combining it with, with other things. So, so it's so so I think this is the future that's coming over this smart smart. I don't know what the name is, but it's the smart steering of of how you are using energy and how you are producing energy. So then you get this prosumers, or you are consuming part of the day, and then you are producing or sending back to the grid other parts of the day. So, so, so it's absolutely the future, but the future, but it's, it is a smart, smart steering. Yeah. Right. Keith, I know you think that this is the future too. How far is Scotland? What's the bits of kit or structure or what do we need to be able to be getting towards this kind of thing? I'm going to try and tie a few things together. I mean, first of all, I noticed Anne-Marie's, Anne-Marie, sorry, Anne-Martin's uh, comments um, about bulb energy just going under and all being brought into public ownership. One of the problems we have is that under the the um, the expansion, you know, in the name of choice, in the name of consumer choice, we had this big rush of retail energy companies, companies that basically just buy energy from a generator and sell it onto a household and somehow have to make a profit out of that, you know, by better customer service or whatever they can squeeze. And what we've seen is, you know, people in the UK will know we've had a whole load of these companies going to the wall, including Bulb, who have got 1.7 million customers. I think what we're going to get at some point is an intervention for one of the big tech companies. Um, I know from a friend of mine who was consulted by them as far back as 2009, Google were looking at getting into the market. And I think what a lot of energy companies are absolutely terrified of is that one of the big tech giants will make an inroad into the market. People who, you know, companies that we give our data to and that we trust our data with much more so in many cases than the government. So yeah, I do think that's coming. And I think we're, we're I don't know how far away, but the time will, the, the day will come when individual customers can buy and sell, you know, households can buy and sell energy um, directly between the generators and the grid. And I think one of the biggest disappointments over the last few months has been we've had an opportunity to to build up a publicly owned um, generation asset in the form of a public energy company. Um, that has now been twice promised and twice reneged on by Nicola Sturgeon. 
she had her opportunity back in September when Monica Lennon MSP um, raised the uh, put a motion to Parliament to, to establish a public energy company. This is a, a policy that's supported by the vast majority of members of the SNP and the Greens. Both of those parties voted against that amendment, which was absolutely shocking. But the, even the uh, the model that Nicola was talking about um, when she was making her failed promises um, was a retail energy company. And Commonweal and myself and others have argued for a long time that, no, we need to bring public energy generation and infrastructure back into public ownership. And I'm not going to say that overnight that means totally renationalizing everything. It won't happen that way. But if we have assets, um, you know, we can start you know, using those assets to generate more private investment, to generate more community investment and to get the whole system working and strategically plan it. And I, I'm really, really, you know, I'm struggling to be optimistic throughout this whole thing. But I think it, it's a good, you know, for those people in Scotland, look at what has been promised by the government and what has actually been delivered and look at the details of it. Um, we need a radical change. And maybe that will come from a company like Google or Apple who do have big, um, who already own large amounts of renewable energy anyway. Um, but we do need, something needs to happen. Um, and I don't think it'll happen in the same way that we've seen in um, the Scandinavian countries because you know, we are so far away from where you guys are. Oh, this is depressing. Um, Tori, you're actually nodding there, Victoria, as well, about the possibility of Google entering the, the, the energy market. I don't know, but the, well, perhaps Google can also come in. So, but we're also seeing this kind of, of companies coming in Norway. Now, for instance, the one called Tibber in Norway. So they have this uh, smart... So, so, so they, are selling, they are selling energy on the spot market, and then they have this, uh, yeah, this smart grid in each houses so that's uh, so that's a sim- similar thing but but for sure when when the when the big players like google or or perhaps even facebook when, when these are when these are coming into people's houses then of course things can go very fast right that's a but it's just a, a scary, scary prospect hugely scary actually so <laughs> that's really thrown me because that's really, seems like quite a horrific prospect actually but i mean i wonder in that we've just got about 10 minutes left um and i think most people here i see some comments coming in um, including tudor barnard actually tudor can you just come in and say your own thing there i think what uh, victoria has completely missed from the swedish perspective is the fact that sweden has enormous forests and forests are renewable there is a debate going on just now about how to manage forests properly, whether they should be seen as plantations to be exploited for, for uh, paper and, and things like that, or whether they should be seen in a, in a completely different context. And I would say, slightly following this debate, I would say that the big forestry companies want to see plantation-type methods, but there are a lot of medium-sized and small forest owners in Sweden. And they are, generally speaking, more interested in progressive environmental aspects of forestry management. So that's one thing I'd like to say. Also, the fact that wood is not just to be burnt. I think there's a 12 or 16-story house in, uh, or building, I should say, in Skellefteå, which has just been opened and is made of wood. The whole thing. So um, that would be my take uh, on on the Swedish situation, that we have enormous forests, we have vast areas of wilderness. Uh, in that from that point of view, perhaps there is a comparison with with, with Scotland. And um, I think we will find that sensible forestry management 
will turn out to be a very useful component of renewable energy in Sweden. Okay, Victoria, do you want to come back in? Thanks, Tudor. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Tudor, uh, for sharing. Uh, for sure, uh, you're right about that, uh, about what you're saying uh, about Sweden. And there is a debate going on whether we should use, what we should use our forests for. And the power industry, uh, the behind, I mean, behind large CHPs, for example, of course, they point out the fact that you only burn the rest, the, the what's what's not used for anything else. So you don't take down trees to put into, to, to make um, heat from, obviously. Uh, however, the environmentalist groups uh, argue that the trees, they, they store carbon, mm. which is very, very valuable for, for everyone. So they shouldn't be touched anyway. Doesn't matter what you do with them. So that there's a debate going on there, obviously. Uh, but I do think that Tudor has a point. Uh, we have vast areas with, with large forests and we can use them for building, not the least. And yes, I've seen the building in Gileptio and it's, it's massive. It's really cool. And then again, the critique says that we used to build out of wood, but then we had huge fires. Very interesting discu discussions going forward, definitely. Yeah. Uh, does Tura or Soren just want to come in on that point, just, just on biomass and forestry? Because a lot, a lot of people have got quite a bad association with biomass because it so often in Scotland um, has been imported, actually, you know, halfway across the world to be burnt. And that has made everybody think incinerators, no, biomass, no, 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 no. So um, is there something to be said for it? Yes, I think I agree that it's not a good idea to import biomass from the Baltic area, from Canada, from any other country outside your, your own territory. I think biomass has a role if it's like produced within uh, kind of the neighborhood of, of where, you, where you consume it. And, and I say that mainly because that's what we do. So maybe, maybe I try to make an excuse for ourselves. But if you look at, at, at straw or remains from farm products, where we actually plow down like 20% or 30% of the biomass to maintain the microbes and, and the biomass in the topsoil, which is more or less what the, the topsoil can absorb and digest. If you put more biomass in, we have to add more fertilizer to, to make a, a good compost. So the remaining 70%, some is used for bedding for animals and other things also, but we have abundant amounts of it that we can use to bale and put into the furnaces and burn and use for local heating purposes. We take the ashes out of the, of the boiler, uh, the compartment, the, the furnace, and then we bring it back to the farms and spread it on the fields because there's still kalium and phosphorus and minerals in it that is useful for the soil. So we only kind of lend the, the carbons uh, uh, while burning it. So the straw absorbs the main, same amount of carbon as it releases when it's burned. And then the, in the addition to it, we have a little uh, carbon uh, dioxide uh, emission from the transport, but that's not a lot. So I think it makes sense if it's homegrown and locally produced, then, then I think we can, we, can, uh, we can be in a responsible way used biomass. And you're talking as well about the condition of your soil. I mean, it's it's lovely to listen because you're obviously are still a farming island <laughs> because it's yes. farmers that understand a lot of this circular economy. 
But like we, we have a big vegetable production, so farmers are very aware of the condition of the soil. We can't produce high quality vegetables if we don't keep the soil in good condition. So we have to feed the, the micro microorganisms with, with biomass. So, so, so we need to keep a certain amount of it, but we do a lot of tests and investigations in what's the limit of how much we can take, how much we have to stay, uh, stay in, in, in circulation. Tori, can, I just wonder if you know anything about this, because I was at a, an event run uh, by the Revive Coalition in Scotland, who are very concerned about the fact that a, Scot uh, a fifth of Scotland is a driven grouse moor with all the strange practices that goes on there, including lots of burning, sometimes poison that's uh, on, on those moors. And, and actually, they're making the point that you can have a view about the, the birds and the shooting and hunting, that's to one side. But the, the way that soil has been degraded is really, really important. And we don't understand enough that soil, the actual land, is locking in carbon. And it doesn't do that when it's damaged. Our peatlands, for example, when they're damaged, they don't lock in. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's very important what you say. So, of course, uh, biomass is a renewable energy source. But, uh, for instance, in Scandinavia, lots of carbon is stored, actually not, well, also in the trees, but also lots of carbon is stored in the soil. So, so one should be extremely careful how, for instance, how, what kind of machines one is using, how, how, how one is taking out this, um, this forest, for instance. And that also has to do with road building. It has to do with if you are draining these bogs or this peat to, to make yeah, park, parking lots, whatever you're making. So, then, so this, is, uh, this is an issue that people are more and more aware of this, how much carbon are actually stored in the soil and how easy it is to release this into the atmosphere. So that's, so that's one thing. And, and then, of course, and when it comes to, uh, to this usage of forest, it, of course, it has also to do with biodiversity. One should be really careful how how much one is taking out, how, how one is doing it. So this, uh, if you're just flattening everything, or if you're just taking out small small patches of, of forests, it's, um, it, it is a big issue. But I think people are more and more aware of this, more and more concerned about this, uh, what you say, conservation of nature on the on the one hand, and on the other hand, trying to get more energy out of it. So it's, uh, but it is a delicate mm. balance. Okay, we've reached almost the end of our time. I just wanted to finish by asking all the speakers just, what for your country do you think is the number one thing? This is really difficult because it's always a basket. I understand that. So you can cheat, but roughly the one thing that you think is the big challenge that you need to crack. So let's start with uh, Soren in Denmark. I think we have two main issues. We, we are transporting goods way too much. So transportation uh, and resources is, is a really big issue. We're living in a welfare state and we are over-consuming, which means that we're also over-transporting. And, and, and we haven't solved that yet. It is creating a lot of consumption that is kind of wasted. And I think we should look, look into this in the, in the next paradigm of, of evolution where we are looking at much more efficient um, uh, ways of living, uh, more, more smart thinking and, and, and looking into the next uh, technology, um, what do you call it, move or, or, or leap uh, that we're waiting for. Transportation is a really big issue. Yeah. Okay, Victoria, Sweden? Yes, I'm going to cheat. As you said, there's a basket. Uh, but I would like to mention, firstly, we have to figure out how to replace nuclear power when we come to that. Um, I am convinced that we will be able to do it easily 
through new technology, through, for example, as I mentioned before, uh, wind power onshore, offshore, solar, uh, solar panels, internet of things, how you use your energy and so on. But there is still a debate, not in my backyard. People are not so keen on, for example, having wind power next door. So that's one thing. And then uh, secondly, we have to speed up the processes for new infrastructure uh, when it comes to building new grids, new network, uh, both nationally within our country and also to other countries because, because we need to transport more power in our sort of long <laughs> country going from north to south uh, if we are going to make the transition for the transports going from fossils to electricity. Okay. Uh, Keith? Oh, God, I'm going to have to get political on it. Um, I think the biggest challenge is the lack of technical knowledge amongst our civil servants and the number of civil servants who have um, previously had jobs in organisations such as the Energy Saving Trust, which is a private not-for-profit company and notorious for lobbying the, lobbying the Scottish Government to design policies that it then goes on to deliver badly. I think we need to get past the political spin um, you know, sorry, but we are not the best small country in the world for energy. We're actually very, very far from it. Um, we need to get away from the, you know, every time somebody like me posts on Twitter, critical of, of um, Nicola of energy policy. Yeah, I'm doing that because I've studied it for years and I've even published the odd book on it. Um, we have to be honest with ourselves. We are, you know, we we are lacking in technical capacity in the civil service. We have an awful lot of yes people within the civil service. Um, the Scottish government is being lobbied effectively by the likes of the EST and also by the fossil fuel industry. I actually think we need a proper Green Party. And you guys may be aware the Green Party down south is a different party. I, it, there's a lot of things that are going on that are very, very concerning. And I know we've mentioned in our talk, Monica Lennon, the Labour MSP being um, nerfed, being demoted from her position as an energy spokesperson, a fantastic person who's spoken out on the need for a public energy company. People like Doug Chapman, my MP, who is not getting the attention he deserves. Joanna Cherry has been fantastic on energy issues, but of course we hear about her because of her views on other things. I, I think a lot of our problems are actually largely political and educational, and that really goes to the heart of, I think, Scotland's problems that go a lot wider than energy issues. Right, so that's that is the, the cheery summary. Although the the tremendous shame of all of this is listening to Victoria talking about the alternatives that need to come in for nuclear and that baseload that it provides, um, is that tidal energy is one of the huge possibilities that has always sat stalled. I say this as someone whose family comes from the Pentland Firth, right at the north of Scotland that's looking at the fastest tidal stream sites in the whole of Europe and just, just never managed to crack how to get tidal into a, a commercially deliverable property. Although that is happening, we might lose the companies because they just aren't really getting the, the help that they need. So, you know, we've got so much to give in Scotland. It's maddening that we can't seem to get this together. Um, so, Tura, you're going to be on the last word here. Norway, what's the biggest challenge? And you can cheat as well. Well, I, I can say two, two, two things, actually. So one, one is the oil and gas industry. So that is what is uh, causing our emissions to increase or why, why it hasn't decreased. So that's something. Uh, some, so that's number one, I guess. So we know that we, at some point we will have to phase out, not phase down, but actually phase out the oil and gas industry. How much oil and gas? Because you're actually exporting the problem, mostly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So are you meaning that success happens when you just stop using it completely, but hey, you can still keep exporting it? 
or is success when you stop exporting and stop drilling? No, so what we have to phase it completely out so that so that they stop to stop drilling. So and when this will happen, I don't know, perhaps in 20 years, perhaps in 30 years. But but at some of course also if if Europe will su- su- succeed, if Europe will be successful in uh, in this transition, then of course there will be no buyers for Norwegian oil and gas at some point. So this so this will happen, but we don't know when. But this but this is one issue and another issue, and I think I will echo Søren, is this overconsumption. So so Norway, Norwegians are extremely rich and we are consuming much, much more than what the rest of the world is, or most others in the world um, is consuming. So that is another thing. We have to do quality, we have to do recycling, we have to be more like circular economy. So we, we, we cannot continue to consume as much as we are uh, consuming. So it's simply not, it's not big enough planet for this. So that's num- number two. And the third one is we still need more renewable energy. And that's, so I think we, we, we had lots of plans for, for on, onshore wind, like they have in Sweden, for instance, but that is completely, that's completely stopped. It was not, it was not, put, yeah, it was so much resistance against it. So now people are looking for offshore wind. So I think offshore wind will be a big thing in Norway and perhaps also floating offshore wind, like the one you have outside, um, outside Scotland, the high wind, high wind Scotland. So this, this is coming now. So I think this will be big in the future. Just one last cheeky thought. I suppose I'm, I'm trying to remember if Norway and Sweden have joined BOGA, which is beyond oil and gas, which Denmark has established with, I think, Costa Rica and was really given a big push at COP26. Beyond oil and gas, Denmark is out there <laughs> kind of leading the way, actually, amongst all the Nordics. Are your countries members of that? Because I think shamefully, Scotland said it might join as a friend sometime down the line, even though Wales has joined immediately. But then, of course, Wales probably doesn't have as much oil drilling as Scotland has to lose. Are you guys members of BOGA yet? I I don't know, to be honest. Soren might know. Did you know? No, no, I don't know either. Okay, so it looks like I think you're very possibly Denmark is now sort of ahead of the pack. Mm, maybe that must make you grit your teeth, the rest of you. But is that true? Yeah, they're not speaking. They're just going yes, but we just don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I can give Denmark that they they are well ahead when it comes to decentralized district heating and also the usage of wind power because they were definitely pioneers in the Nordics when it comes to wind power. Uh, we've all been inspired by 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 you, definitely. I would say. But I, if I understand it rightly, Denmark has committed to stop drilling, and actually, Denmark is does have some activity in the North Sea. I think it's mostly for gas. But anyway, let me not push this too far because perhaps I mean, maybe it's something that even you know Soren doesn't have all the details on. Well, there is a there is a political decision to stop drilling. So so that has been decided. I can't remember what year it is. Maybe it's twenty thirty or something like that. Yeah, uh, they need to finish their their platforms and take them away. So so they they will will be out of oil by I think it's twenty thirty. And probably mm. people will be looking at quite a lot. Can I just say, there's been uh, all the way through. Dan has been posting links to quite a number of the things that uh, our Nordic friends have been talking about. So if you are very interested in them, you can just cut and paste, hopefully. And uh, we'll we'll put more links up on the website later, nordichorizons.org, where there'll also be clips of kind of some of the most significant things um, that you've seen here. We'll have them on social media. So if there's anything you want to just send on to people and say, look, you should really listen to this, the, the whole actual discussion will be there as well. So, I mean, really, 
Thank you so much to everybody who also braved the technology at the beginning. And by gum, do we need to have a little rehearsal the next time? <laughs> but anyway, I'm so glad that you persevered for us. Um, and just actually your explanations are so crystal clear as well for us. It just describes a world that seems to make sense. I've been watching these chats all the way through, and that's what keep, people keep saying. It's the way that what you're describing is a kind of, okay, it's not a perfect world, but it's it's a world that at least has some some control and strategy in it, which it just keeps feeling we don't have. So anyway, very grateful to you. Also for, to Keith Baker for overcoming all his bad feelings about the whole fraught area now of what you can hope for in Scotland um, to kind of articulate some of that, that uh, you know, those misgivings, because we need to be speaking about this. We've just got to do better. We just have to do. So thanks, everybody. Um, just to say to you, if you do want to look at the crowd for the crowdfunder, it would really help us. So have a look on nordichorizons.org and the information's all there. Thanks to the Nordic Horizons team. Thank you very much and uh, good night.